God's word is not just something that we do, and it's not just something that we do one time. It's not something that we did, but it's something that we are, that we are continually doing. And it's a, it's a state of, of being. It's part of our identity, and it's, and it's who we are. Grace and peace, everyone. It's, it's truly a, a privilege to be here and to have the opportunity to speak to everybody today. Uh, you probably didn't notice, but when we were going through who's from East Boston, who's from Medford, I raised my hand with Medford. So I'm part of the, the Medford group. And uh, there's, there's three of us that are on rotation to preach. And this just happened to be my week. I wasn't planning to give the inaugural message at Sattler Chapel. But it kind of worked out in a, I think, a divinely appointed way. I've been reading through the, the book of James, preaching through the book of James, and we're coming to the last section, last passage in the first chapter. And I think it's actually quite relevant to, uh, to what the chapel is about, to what Sattler is about, and, and particularly to the, I think, the incoming students, but, but I think also generally to, to everybody here today. You know, I don't, I don't know if this analogy has been made before, so uh, at least the incoming students won't have heard it yet. And for those of you who may have already heard it, forgive me if, it's, if it seems trite, but I was noticing while we were uh, sitting there, the, the airport, the runway over here, and the planes taking off, and thinking about how those planes are going to all different parts of the world. One might be going to Africa, one might be going to Asia, there might be a little puddle jumper that's going to upstate New York. They're really going all over the place. And the runway is right there. And I think particularly for the incoming freshmen, this is kind of like the, the tarmac. You guys are sitting on the tarmac waiting for your uh, orders from the control tower to, to be launched and to go out into the world and to ultimately, I think, do great things for, for the kingdom. There were also a few things in what Brother Dean shared that I think are related to, to my message today. Uh, one of them being that the, the biblical teaching, the teachings of Jesus can really be summarized in the words, follow me, not in listen to me or think about what I've said, but in follow me. And the other being that, that, that the the school here really aligns with the group of individuals, the, the group of churches throughout history that have read the words of, of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and said, let's do this. Not That sounds good, but, but let's do this. So with, with that brief introduction, um, let's go ahead and, and open up the, our Bibles to the book of James. And we're going to look at today's passage. So in the book of James, we're in the first chapter. We're going to read from the 22nd verse to the, to the end of the chapter. And then I'll, uh, I'll pray for, for our time here. <clears throat> but be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this, this time and this space today and for every um, person that is here today. I thank you for the, the faith that you have given to each one of us, Father. I thank you for the many blessings you have given each one of us. And I pray that today you would help us to turn them around and to give them back to you, to turn them into action for your kingdom. Father, I pray that you will be with me as I speak. I pray that my words will be yours. Father, that uh, you would speak to your people, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would uh, challenge, that you would exhort, that you would lift up, that you would build up, you would edify, Father, and that you would sharpen and that you would deploy those who are here today, Father. And, and I pray that I would be an instrument in doing that. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So this passage starts with, with but. So it's obviously connected to what, what goes before it. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So I'm not going <clears> to <throat> repeat the last message I gave, but I'm going to give a, 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 a quick summary of it. There's this, uh, it's al- you can almost just print it on a bumper sticker or, or put it like on a poster in your room. Be slow to be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger it sounds like very good wisdom for uh resolving relational conflict but i don't think that that's what what james means i think what he means actually is be quick to hear god's word spoken be slow to speak as one who is speaking on behalf of god and be slow to anger when, uh, when, when you see the, the sin in the world around you and you, you want to see change and you want to speak into that change. Um, we're, we're not to become quickly anger. We're not to kindle our anger because that does not produce the righteousness of God. So we're to be hearers of the word. We're to be quick to hear, James exhorts us. But in the beginning of the passage here, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so that's the first point that I want to make today is simply that we are to not only be hearers of the words, but we are to be doers of the word. You can imagine the uselessness of being a hearer of something only. If you imagine that there is a island with some stranded uh, victims of a, of a plane crash and you're sailing by on a boat and they are calling out for you and you raise a sign that says, we hear you, we see you. 
and you keep on sailing how how truly useless that is to merely hear God's word and to not put it into action is equally equally useless during your time here at Sattler in particular I I suspect that uh, most people here have have chosen Sattler because it's a school that will that will build your faith it will encourage your faith but in the process uh, I I really believe that there are many things that you will that you will learn about that will that will challenge you there will be many ideas that are new to you many things that you haven't heard before many things that you haven't considered before and they may be um, uncomfortable at times and today, I want to challenge you to, to, to decide, are you going to be somebody who hears or are you going to be somebody who does? When you, when you are confronted with these things, when they, when they come to you, will you merely hear them and consider them and say, that sounds nice? Or will you, will you be one who stands up and says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be not only a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. The second thing that I want to say today is that when it comes to doing the word, don't only do the word, but be a doer of the word. Okay, don't only do the word, but be a doer. And and do you hear the difference there? James is not exhorting us to, to go and to do the word. He is exhorting us to be a doer of the word. Now, if you look at the, the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar. Many of you already know more Greek than, than I do, and, and those who, who don't yet, I, I think, soon will. But I, I am able to at least poke in a little bit. And the word for doer is this word, poietes, which can be translated as, uh, in, depending on context, as creator, maker, or poet. Okay, and the word for word is not rhema, but, but logos. And there's some differences between those words, and, and I don't want to speculate too much on those differences, but the word used here is logos. So be a poetes of the logos. Be a, be a poet of the logos in some sense. You know, I've written poems. I've even spoken poems but I would never lay claim to being a poet. I think there's a big difference between doing something one time, doing something even a few times, and being that thing, between writing a poem, between speaking a poem, and being a poet. A poet eats, breathes, and lives poetry. They, they think in, in poetry. Their speech is poetic. They, their dreams are poetic. It's like poetry is the very substance of their being. And they are able to weave uh, engaging uh, strings of words in, um, in, in, in a way that we should be able to 
to weave God's truth. We should be able to weave God's words. We should be able to weave God's commands and his calls to action into our lives the same way that a a poet is able to make a, a poem. We are to be weaving God's teachings into every aspect of of our life. So God's word is not just something that we do, and it's not just something that we do one time. It's not something that we did, but it's something that we are, that we are continually doing. And it's a, it's a state of, of being. It's part of our identity, and it's, and it's who we are. So we're not only to hear the word, but we're to be doers of the word. And not only to do the word, but to be a doer of the word. The true disciple learns in order that he may do, not in order that he may merely know or teach. It can be easy to think that maybe Christianity or, or faith is something that happens here inside Sattler. And surely there is a great deal of what goes on inside these walls that is fundamental to our, our faith. But our faith is not merely a matter of of learning. And if learning is where it it stops, then it hasn't even really started. It doesn't really start until we get out there, until we get in the streets, until we get in in our homes, in other people's homes. We have people into our homes, and we begin to do the things that we learn about until we begin to put them into practice. The third point that I want to make today is that God's word reflects our true identity to ourselves. In verse 23, James says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Hearing God's word is like looking at our natural face in a mirror. And so God's word reflects to ourselves our true identity. I would venture to say that it's impossible to know to arrive at a, at a true understanding of who we, we are without God's word to reflect our image to ourselves. But, but what does that mean? How does God's word reflect our image? Sometimes it does it explicitly. Sometimes, uh, particularly in, in the New Testament, it, um, there are explicit passages discussing the, the nature of a man. Think about the, the beginning of Romans um, you know, there, there are passages that, that explicitly discuss our nature. But also in a more, more general way, there, there are patterns throughout the biblical text that, that reflect our story. Not in an egocentric way, but we find ourselves in just about every story of, of the Old Testament. And they resonate with, with us for that reason. Because in, in, in some sense, we find ourselves in the story of the Exodus, in the, uh, the story of the garden. 
the story of the Garden of Eden tells us something very fundamental about our true nature, that we were put here on earth to, to keep it for, for God's glory, to manifest God's glory here on earth, and that we willingly chose to disobey God and to rebel against him, and that we're on a continual journey seeking to return to the garden. Um, but our sin has caused us to be cast out and that we need Jesus to ultimately lead us back. We can see ourselves in the story of the exodus from Egypt, just like the Egyptians were under the harsh rule of a slave master in Pharaoh. So too were we all under the uh, harsh rule of a slave master in, in Satan. The only difference is that we had willingly given ourselves to him instead of being sold into slavery. We sold ourselves into slavery. Just like the Egyptians, we were led out of captivity, but not by Moses, instead by Jesus. And instead of going through the, the Red Sea, we have gone through the waters of, of baptism. And just like the Israelites wandered in the desert wilderness for, for 40 years before they could enter the promised land, so too must we sojourn in this world before we can enter the promised land in eternity. It's in patterns like this that we see ourselves throughout the, the scripture and that it reflects to us our true identity, not only in the explicit passages One thing that I, I find kind of uh, interesting is the idea that many of the, the great men of faith have died at the top of mountains. And I don't know if you've, if you've noticed that or, or wondered why, but I think that even in that, we see uh, a, an image or a, or a symbol of our own spiritual journey where we start from lowly places and throughout our lives, we want to continue our spiritual ascent so that at the end of our life, we die at the top of the mountain spiritually. That's the, that's the trajectory that we want to ourselves be on. So if God's word is like a mirror that reflects our image, what should we, what should we do with it? How many people looked in the mirror this morning? the literal mirror when they were getting ready. I don't know about you, but it's pretty hard to go by a mirror without at least taking a quick peek to make sure that you don't have something on your face or, or something like that. I think that God's word ought to be the same way. When we wake up, we, we take a shower and we, we look in the mirror to get ourselves ready for the day. We make sure that we're, we're presentable to the world in a, in a, you know, in a physical way. And in the same way, we should get up and we should look into God's mirror, take a look at ourselves and ask, are we, are we ready for the day to present ourselves before God? Before big events in life, significant life events, you might find yourself 
spending a little bit of extra time in front of the mirror. Maybe you're going to a, a wedding or something, or or maybe it's your own wedding, and you want to make sure that you're you, you really want to make sure you don't have any anything on your face, or, or you know you want to look good. In the same way, before significant life events, we ought to be diving into God's word and reflecting on on God's word and letting it do the work of showing us who we are and the way in which we should go. Finally, when we look at a mirror, we don't look at it and say, oh, my hair's a mess, and then go about our way, but we respond to what we see, and we take action based on, on what we see. We make the necessary adjustments. So God's word reflects our true identity to ourselves. We're not only to hear it, but we're to do it. If we only hear it, we're like one who looks in a mirror and goes away and quickly forgets what he has heard. But if we look into that mirror and we not only do the word, but we become doers of the word, then we will be blessed in our doing. James here suggests that we basically have two two options when confronted by God's word. There, there's two kind of main roads we can go down as as Christians, as as people who um, are are committed to knowing and understanding and believing and practicing what God's word has to say. We can hear it and forget about it, or we can persevere and act on it. Who knows what inertia is, just in very general terms. It's the idea that things that are in motion tend to stay in motion unless acted on by some sort of external force. We all have inertia or, or momentum, and None of us likes to, to change direction or to change fundamental things about, about who we are. We all have uh, identity inertia, personal inertia, spiritual inertia. And so it can be very tempting to, to hear something and to only hear it and then to, to forget about it. An example of somebody who, who hears God's word but chooses to effectively forget it, he chooses to ignore it, is, is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is somebody who is presented with the reality that God is for his people Israel and wants to set them free. And he chooses to, to ignore it. Paul, on the other hand, is somebody who is willing to to shift his inertia, to allow himself to be acted on by what he sees and what he hears. And he makes radical changes and has a very fruitful life for God. So my main challenge to you today is to, today, decide, are you going to be somebody 
who hears God's word and forgets about it, who is a hearer only? Are you going to be somebody who, who acts, somebody who, who does, somebody who puts into action what they've learned? Is, are the things that you learn here at Sattler and, and elsewhere, are they going to remain within these walls or, or within your head? Or are they going to be things that you, that you put into action, things that cause you to, to change the way that you live, to, to behave differently, to carry yourself differently, to conduct yourself differently? Are you willing to pivot? Are you willing to allow your inertia to be shifted? Jeff, can I get a little bit of water, please? So, we're not only to hear the word, but to be doers of the word. We're not just to do the word, but to be doers of the word. God's word reflects our true identity to ourselves. And when we see ourselves reflected in God's word, we have two basic ways that we can respond to it. We can either hear it and forget it, or we can persevere in it and act on it. And there is great reward for those who choose to act. James says that to the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty, to the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The, the, what is the perfect law? If we, if we just flip, the, well, I, I need to flip the page, maybe you don't, to uh, verse 8. Thank you. To, to verse 8 in, in chapter 2. We'll see what he, what he means exactly by, by the perfect law. Uh, he calls it the royal law here. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. This is the same thing that uh, that Jesus says as the first and, and, and second greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the, the perfect law, the law of liberty. It's the principle of love. And, and that's the thing that we must persevere in. And as Brother Dean said, it it applies to our classmates, it applies to our co-workers, it applies to our family, it applies to our neighbors, it applies to, to everybody. But that's the ultimate goal that we're striving towards, is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And in that, there is great blessing. I want to flip to Deuteronomy 30 to just look a little bit about uh, at these, this blessing what God says about our, our ability to, to choose. How we want to proceed when given his commandments. This is uh, 
the scene is is right before the Israelites enter into into the promised land. So Moses has just again given the the Israelites the the entire law and he's laid it all out before them. He's told them everything that, that they are to do and he's laid out the blessings for for doing, for being uh, hearers who who do and who persevere. And he's laid out the curses for those who who hear but do not act, those who who forget. He even later gives them a song. He says, even if you forget the law, you'll remember the song. We all know that song has a way of really sticking, really sticking. So he gives them a song that says, even if you forget the law itself, you'll remember this song and the song will point you back to the law. So, so you can't really forget. In verse 11, he says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. There are going to be times where where you look at the obstacles in front of you, where you think about the the cost of, of making some kind of a, a change in your life, and it's going to seem far off and, and insurmountable. But in my experience, every time that somebody bears that cost, the, the fruit, the, the reward is always far greater, and it's always possible. It's always, uh, it's not so far off. It seems insurmountable but it's never truly far off. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Now, I'm not preaching a, a, a prosperity gospel, but generally speaking, the blessing of, of obedience to God and, and willingness to, to bear the, the cost is, um, is spoken of in terms of, of stability, of um, of fruitfulness, of, of productivity, and that's the image of, of the life of the one who is deeply rooted in God's word and, and drawing from that stream. It's one of fruitfulness and of, and of productivity, as opposed to one of disease and death and, um, and violence. So there's great reward for those who choose to act.
Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There's an interesting connection here that, that James is making between the, uh, the heart and the tongue. And there's this general phenomenon. I don't know if you have ever experienced it, encountered it, are aware of it. But sometimes we confuse speaking of virtue with possessing virtue. Maybe you are on a, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you realize that you need to exercise more. It can be easy to confuse speaking about exercising with actually doing, doing the work. Sometimes when we have something in our life that we know we should be doing, we confuse speaking about it with actually doing it. Uh, you know, I have, to, I have to confess here that I think I'm being a little bit loose with the text. I, I think that when he speaks about one who does not bridle his tongue, I think he's primarily talking to, to teachers. When James has, has a whole section in, in chapter 2 about, about taming the tongue and the damage that, that the tongue can do, and he's talking there primarily in the context of, of teachers, those who speak on, on behalf of God. So I'm, I'm you know, I, and I think that there's the, the seed of that in this text here. He primarily has these teachers in mind who uh, would be teaching falsely, uh, potentially. But I think that, that in this, there, there's a lesson for, for all of us, and it's that we are prone to confuse speaking of, of virtue, speaking of religion. You know, we, we, we hear about, we learn about, we discuss faith and religion here at, at Sattler, and it's easy to confuse discussing it with actually possessing and practicing it. There's a, a kind of cutesy little uh, excerpt here that, that I want to read. You, you may have heard it before, but I'm, I'm going to read it today. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. And the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. Further, they said, the fishing industry exists by fishing as fire exists by burning. They love slogans such as, fishing is the task of every fisherman, and every fisherman is a fisher and a fisherman's outpost for every fisherman's club. They sponsored special meetings called Fisherman's Campaigns and the month of for fishermen to fish. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing, to promote fishing, and hear about all the ways of fishing, such as the new fishing equipment, fish calls, and whether any new bait was discovered. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters, 
The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, was fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what is needed is a board which could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing. The board was formed by those who had the great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing in a faraway streams and lakes, where many other fish of different colors lived. Also, the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built, whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology. But the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many were graduated and giving fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters that were filled with fish. Some spent much study and travel to learn the history of fishing and to see faraway places where the founding fathers did great fishing in the centuries past. They lauded the faithful fishermen of years before who had handed down the idea of fishing. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. Presses were kept busy day and night to produce material solely devoted to fishing methods, equipment, and programs to arrange and to encourage meetings to talk about fishing. A speakers bureau was also provided to schedule special speakers on the subject of fishing. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish. But like fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They built power plants to pump water for fish and tractors to plow new waterways. They made all kinds of equipment to travel here and there to look at fish hatcheries. Some also said they wanted to be part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors, and how loving and kind they were was enough. After one stirring meeting on the necessity for fishing, one young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day, he reported he had caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it. So he quit his fishing in order to have time to tell about the experience to the other fishermen. He was also placed on the fishermen's general board as a person having considerable experience. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. They wondered about how about those who felt it was of little use to attend the weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine how hurt some of them were when one day a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it did sound correct. 
Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? This is a kind of comical, funny little little story here, but it but I think it resonates with with a lot of people in in a lot of ways. There's going to be lots that, like I said, lots that happens here. Lots of training, um, and and fishing is going to be one of the things that you're all trained to do. But it can't stop there. That can't be the total of the progress that's made here at Sattler and in your individual lives. You are created to put these things into practice. So we are prone to confusing speaking about virtue with actually possessing it, to speaking about action with actually acting. The final point that I want to make today is that religion is not uh, ceremonial, it's not traditional, it's not something that we're, that we're born into. It's operative and it's functional. Those are kind of technical technical words. It's not, uh, it's not a matter of, of our dress, it's, uh, although our, it does pertain to how we dress. It's not a matter of, of, of where we come from, what language we, we speak, but it's, it's how we conduct ourselves in the world. Let's, uh, well, we should stay here in James for a second. James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is closely related to some other passages. Um, let's turn to Hosea 6.6. 6. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He desires that the, that the Israelites put into practice the, the love of, of one another, not merely these rituals, these ceremonies, these traditions that they've been handed down for generations, but that they actively do the hard work of steadfastly loving one another and the sojourners amongst them. Similarly, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, he rebukes the Pharisees saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. He's rebuking the Pharisees for maintaining the external traditions, the, the ceremonies, the traditions that they've been handing down while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faith, uh, visiting the poor, the oppressed, the orphans, and, and the widows. He rebukes them for practicing a religion that is merely ceremonial, that is not operative, that is not functional. And James is saying something similar in this passage. 
So again, we see James putting emphasis on the the doing of of the word and the the word being the perfect law of liberty that is the law of of love, loving one's neighbor. So to summarize then and and to to close my my thesis today is that true growth comes not from learning and simply knowing truth propositions and you're going to I think all you either already are or you will study many of these and you will develop convictions, you will solidify convictions you have, you will, uh, you will exchange convictions on certain things. True growth comes not from holding the convictions, from learning and knowing the truth propositions that support those convictions, but from practicing them and from embodying them. That's where spiritual growth comes from. And that's where you will experience it in your own lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for this time again. I thank you for the, the message that, uh, that we have seen in, in James here to, to be doers of your word, Father, not to simply do your word, to, but, to, but to be doers, those who who practice it daily, Father, those who are defined, identified by it. I pray that you would make that possible through your spirit. Father, we are truly incapable of our own accord to do that. We need you to strengthen and empower us. So please do that that work. I pray for everybody in this room today that you would encourage them, that you would give them zeal and and passion to to be doers of, of your word and that you would do great things through them. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray.